All right. Good morning, everyone. I am rarely at a loss for words when it comes to our Sunday school lesson, so I like to start promptly to make sure that I have time to not hold you late. So uh, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we'll open up and see what Scripture has to say to us today. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so grateful for your word and all of the different types of genres and messages and lengths and truths that are in your word, all the different things that we know well and that we don't know well. And we know that they are all your word. They all are valuable and important and we can learn from them. And I pray this morning that you would help us to see and understand and learn um, from something that we may not know much about. And I pray that this would be profitable. You'd give us eyes to see that we would uh, not just attempt to understand this with our own knowledge and power, but that your spirit would illuminate our eyes and our hearts to be able to understand this. And uh, God, I just thank you for being our sovereign Lord, who is in control of all of the events in history and um, is bringing them to your exact purpose. And I pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I really love the format for our Sunday school class, the survey style that we get to look at each book of the Bible and not have to rush through uh, different books that we may not know as well. And it also it allows us and it forces us to encounter books that we don't normally spend much time in. And this morning, we'll be focusing on one of those obscure books that we don't know quite as well, and that's the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah falls between Amos and Jonah in your Bibles. And so if you're looking for Obadiah, it may be more helpful to look for Amos or Jonah because it's so short and it's really easy to miss. Obadiah is the shortest book in the entire Old Testament. It's probably just going to be a page or two in your Bible, so it's very easy to skip over and miss. And at only 21 verses long, it doesn't even have enough content to get multiple chapters. It doesn't have a chapter. It's just Obadiah. There's verses in Obadiah. Um, there's only 292 words in the entire book, which is probably less than I've already said this morning. It's a very short book, very short, simple message. And to unpack the book of Obadiah this morning, we're going to approach the book in two different sections. First, we're going to go over the background of the book to kind of give us a, a place to understand it. So we'll go through the the author, the purpose of the book, the setting, and then the audience. But second, we're going to go through the outline of the book and the content. And unlike many of the lessons that we've had, like when I've taught on the book of Psalms, we actually are going to be able to walk through verse by verse, word by word, through the book of Obadiah, which is not very common in a survey class, but it's, a, it's so short we're able to do that. Otherwise, I'd have about 20 minutes of content. So... We get to really dig into Obadiah to see what the book is saying, which I'm excited about. But first, let's start with the background for Obadiah. The book bears the name of its author, Obadiah, and there are 13 different Obadiahs mentioned in Scripture. There's not really any evidence to show us which of these Obadiahs is this Obadiah that wrote this prophetic book. It could be someone that is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, but we really don't know for sure. It could be someone else. What we do know for sure is that Obadiah was a prophet from Judah, and he was likely from Jerusalem. But beyond that, we can only guess um, at who Obadiah this prophet was. We do know that his name means servant of the Lord, Obadiah. 
But we do know more about the purpose of the book. In verse 1, the prophet says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Obadiah is a judgment against the nation of Edom. And if you just walk away with one truth this morning, walk away with that. That Obadiah is a judgment against Edom. The purpose is really just as simple as that. But we can unpack that more. If you just walk away with one thing, just walk away with Obadiah as a judgment against Edom. But let's, let's look at that a little bit more. First, we should understand something about the nation of Edom and its history to understand why we even have this judgment against this nation. And Edom was one of the most important nations in the, in the history of Israel and its uh, interactions with all the other nations around them. And that's not because Edom was a particularly powerful nation. They didn't have a lot of political power. They didn't have a lot of military power. They were really relatively a small country. But their history with Israel placed them in a very prominent position to show why they're so important. And we find the origin of Edom and the origin of their strife with Israel in Genesis 25, verses 22 through 26. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah are expecting twins. And we're told, the children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Now these twins, Esau and Jacob, came to be known by different names. Esau, which means hairy, also gained the name Edom, meaning red, which referred to the color of his hair. And Jacob gained the name Israel. And so you can see the beginnings of these nations of Edom and Israel in the birth of the twins, Esau and Jacob. You can see they were striving with each other even from the womb, which prefigured the strife that they would have throughout the history of their nations for thousands of years to come. And throughout the following chapters in Genesis, we see that strife between Jacob and Esau. We see Jacob tricking Esau out of his birthright and blessing. We see Esau making life bitter for his parents by marrying pagan Canaanite women. And then we see Jacob living in fear of his brother uh, because he thought he was going to seek vengeance upon him. But interestingly, Jacob and Esau actually find reconciliation in Genesis 33. They end on good terms as Esau comes to meet Jacob, not in revenge, but in acceptance, in reconciliation. Genesis 36 caps off Esau's story, and it shows his importance by the fact that it gives him a genealogy. Scripture doesn't give genealogies for just everyone, but Esau is important and significant enough to actually show the descendants that came from him. And Genesis Genesis 36 verse 8 tells us that Esau settled in Seir, which is southwest of what would come to be the nation of Judah. So this is Unfortunately, Israel is not very proportional to our TV screens. It needs to be horizontal to get the best picture. But if you want to pull up your maps, um, you can kind of see this. Judah, uh, in the red circle there, that was where Judah and Israel came to be. Edom is this little nation down to the southeast. And that, in Genesis 36, is where we see that Esau and his descendants came to settle. 
So that is Judah, Judah and Edom. And unfortunately, unlike Esau, his descendants emulate only his example of this dissension and strife and battle. They don't ever follow his example of restoration, of alliance with Jacob again. They only follow the, the strife and the difficulty. And it's really easy to miss if you're not looking for it. But all throughout the story of the Old Testament, we find Edom acting as a thorn in Israel's side. Uh, there's many more instances that I can go through this morning, but let me just give you some of the highlights. In Numbers chapter 20, as Israel is seeking a passage through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they are denied passage by Edom, who would rather go out to battle and try to destroy Israel than let them just pass through peacefully. Israel even pleads with them, just, hey, let us go through. And they refer to Edom as their brother, remembering Esau as the brother of Jacob, but to no avail. In 1 Samuel 22, uh, Saul, King Saul, asks his army to kill some priests who have uh, harbored David and his men. And his own army, his own Israelites say, we're not going to kill priests. That's not our MO. And so Saul turns to Doeg the Edomite who then slaughters the priesthood, again, Edom. In 1 Kings eleven fourteen, when God raises up enemies against Solomon for his disobedience, the first enemy heading the list of people that were attacking Israel is Hadad, the Edomite. And throughout the prophets, throughout other prophets besides Obadiah, judgment is leveled against the nation of Edom no less than 14 different times, which seems out of place for such a small nation. We even see the final traces of Edom's strife against Israel in the New Testament. By that time, Edomites had become known as Edomians, and one such Edomian, none other than Herod himself, sought to eradicate the promised seed of Israel in Matthew chapter 2. So Edom was never a very powerful nation. They, they never rivaled Egypt or Syria or Babylon in terms of a military threat to Israel, but they were a constant opponent and constant frustration. They strove with Israel as Esau strove with Jacob. And their place as an enemy of Israel is particularly important because they're not just a pagan nation among the Canaanites that opposed Israel. They are Israel's brother. They are not meant to, to fill the role of an enemy. They are meant to fill the role of an ally. Scripture consistently refers to Edom as Israel's brother. Even when both were nations and there was no longer a direct lineage, God even addresses Edom in Deuteronomy 23, verses 7 through 8, as he's giving commands to Israel. He says to Israel, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So Israel and Edom were integrally linked, and while God chose Israel and not Edom as his chosen nation, he did designate the nations to work in tandem, not in opposition. Remember that to Rebekah, uh, the Lord says, the older will serve the younger. They were supposed to be allied. They were supposed to be help each other. And this is what makes Edom's continued animosity so striking. Edom is Israel's brother, but he consistently treats him as an enemy. Rather than embracing his role as, as helping Israel, he bucked against it and opposed him. And so the nation that perhaps bore the greatest weight to bless Israel and ally themselves with God's chosen people was perhaps the most prominent example of a nation that cursed Israel and by extension opposed God. 
And Edom's significant role as a brother-turned-betrayer helps explain why we have an entire book dedicated to proclaiming judgment against them. And, in fact, their place of prominence as one of Israel's enemies also allows them to be a representative of other nations. They do bear their own role at the top of the list, but as we see judgment in the book of Obadiah, it's not just limited to Obadiah. Or, excuse me, there's not just, it's not just limited to Edom. There's, there's references to the other nations that have followed Edom's example. Edom is perhaps the most prominent of these, but when we read this judgment, we can read this judgment upon other nations as well. So the background of Edom's relationship with Israel help us to understand the purpose of the book. Obadiah is a judgment against Edom for their betrayal of their brother Israel. Looking at the setting and the date of the book will give us a little bit more information to help us see what's going on here as well. And we don't know with absolute certainty the exact circumstances that led to Obadiah being written. Similar to what we know about the author, we don't know all the details about the setting. But we do know that it was written in response to a time when another nation invaded Judah, specifically pillaging their capital, Jerusalem, and then Edom joined in the attack rather than coming to Judah's aid. Obadiah verses 10 and 11 clue us into this. It says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And we can pinpoint this invasion and betrayal to one of two different situations that occurs in Scripture. We don't know for sure which one it is, but we know that it's, it's almost certainly one of these two times. The first occurred around 845 B.C. during the reign of Jehoram when Edom rebelled against Judah and attacked it, attacked Jerusalem. This is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 21. And there are some reasons that would lead us to think that it would be this situation. Um, this occurred earlier in the history of Israel, and Obadiah in its place in the Minor Prophets is placed with other books that were written around the same time frame. So it could make sense that it would occur during this earlier time frame. If that's the case, Obadiah would have been written around 845 to 800 BC, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, but I personally think it's more likely that Obadiah was written later, after the Babylonian deportation of Judah in 586 BC. This deportation is described in 2 Kings 25, as Babylon took nearly all of those who were living in Judah into exile in Babylon, leaving only the poorest behind. In Jerusalem, the capital is left in shambles. While Edom isn't mentioned in 2 Kings 25, there are several other passages that show that they were involved in this attack. Uh, Psalm 137, for example, uh, which condemns Babylon for destroying Jerusalem and de deporting the Jews. Psalm 137, verse 7 says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. So we can see that Edom was actually involved in this deportation and the sacking of Jerusalem as well. And so if we take the deportation to Babylon to be the setting, it means that Obadiah was written between 586 and 550 B.C. Uh, Obadiah was one of those who would have been left in Jerusalem and would have been speaking to other Jews who were still living there after this deportation. 
Um, I personally think that that is the more convincing argument, but either way, the message of the book doesn't change. E either date would result with the same message. Either way, Obadiah is written to proclaim judgment on Edom for their actions. So that's the background. Oh, actually, one more piece of the background. Um, we've looked at the author, the purpose, and the, the setting of the book, but we should pause to consider the audience. Obadiah is written as if Edom was listening. God speaks to Edom in the second person. He doesn't speak about Edom as they. He says, you, you. He directs his, his message to Edom. But in reality, this book is not just for Edom. Obadiah was written for Judah, for God's people. Judgment was proclaimed on Edom, but primarily that judgment was proclaimed to encourage Judah. Put yourself in their shoes. If you are a Jew in Jerusalem, your city has just been ransacked. God's enemies have won a victory, and your brother Edom, who should be your ally, has added insult to injury by taking advantage of you rather than coming to help. If you're still living in Jerusalem, you would ask, is God just? Is God faithful? Is he going to judge Edom? Is he going to restore his people? And to all of these questions, Obadiah answers with a resounding yes. He will keep his promises. He will curse Edom because they have cursed Israel. God has not forgotten his people. He's going to execute his perfect justice upon wrongdoers. And as bad as Israel's loss has been, their restoration will be even greater. And so if the purpose of Obadiah is to proclaim judgment against Edom, the message to Judah would be to trust God as a result. God is judging Edom. So you can trust him to keep his covenant promise. That is the message of Obadiah to the nation of Judah. And specifically, Obadiah confirms three major promises that God has made to the nation that would have been in their heads as they think through all of these things and hear this prophecy. First, Obadiah confirms that God is faithful to judge Israel's enemies. And this comes from the Abrahamic covenant where God promised Abraham in Genesis uh, chapter 12 that he would bless those who blessed Abraham and the nation that came from him, and God would curse those who cursed Abraham and the nation that came from him. This is a promise to protect those whom God, who love God's people and to judge those who oppose God's people. Edom should have been a nation that blessed Israel, but instead they have cursed him, so God will curse them in kind. But the second promise that God confirms is that Obadiah confirms that God will restore Israel to their promised land. And this again comes from the Abrahamic covenant, where God promises that he will establish Israel in the land that he would provide them. Though Israel's sin eventually sent them into exile out of the land, God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 4 and 5, that while they were there, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And especially if, if Obadiah does follow the deportation to Babylon, this question would have been squarely in the mind of the people left in Judah. Will God keep his promise and bring, a, bring his people back into the land? And, and as we walk through the text, we're going to see some remarkable explanations of how God is going to do that with some really specific geographical features. They were, they were so specific that I broke my normal protocol of, I don't like doing PowerPoints for lessons, but there's so many things that you have to see a map for that I, 
I followed in the steps of Al and Scott, and I, I made a PowerPoint. So we'll, we'll get to see that in, in a little bit. But Obadiah confirms that God is going to be faithful to judge enemy nations. He is faithful to uh, restore Israel to their land. And third, Obadiah confirms that God will, be, God will establish his kingdom. God will establish his kingdom. And really, the high point of the whole book of Obadiah comes in the final verse, verse 21. It says, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In the ultimate time that God brings the, nation in, the nations into submission and restores Israel to their land will be in the millennial kingdom. And this is in keeping with his promises in several places of scripture that he would establish a kingdom. In Genesis 17, God promises that kings will come from Abraham. And in Genesis 49, he shows that the scepter will never depart from Judah. This kingdom will specifically come through Judah. This kingdom is further described in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises to establish that kingdom through the line of David, that he would keep one of his descendants on the throne forever. And lastly, God proclaims in Psalm chapter 2, that in response to his enemies, he will establish his king in Zion, his holy hill. God will not suffer the nations to oppose him, but will rule with justice as he establishes his kingdom. And so Obadiah reminds us that even though Israel's kingdom was crumbling, God would establish his kingdom. So that is the backdrop of Obadiah. And so with that backdrop now, we have, again, the wonderful opportunity to look through Obadiah verse by verse. We have so much time left, and we get to look at every verse. It blows my mind that we can do this in a survey class. So I'm very excited to do this. Uh, so let's start with the outline, the outline of the book. It really breaks down into five different sections that all relate to judgment. The first of these sections is in verses 1 through 4, and these verses show the promise of judgment. The promise of judgment. The really judgment is just introduced, proclaimed, it's promised to the nation. Let me read these verses. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now, like all true prophets, Obadiah is very quick to show that his is not just a human message. It is a divine message. Obadiah has seen a vision, and the vision is from the Lord. Thus says the Lord is a command to listen to the authoritative word of God. Now, while it may seem like a common title to us, referring to God as the Lord God is actually a very uncommon way in the Old Testament to, to describe him. It's a title that's only used in Ezekiel and Amos outside of Obadiah. And this title points to God as the sovereign Lord. That is how Obadiah introduces God at the beginning of this book. It's a very apt title given the message of judgment to the nations and faithfulness to Israel that is about to follow. And verse 1 continues by Obadiah stating again that his message is from the Lord and the message is a call to the nations to rise up against Edom. 
Verse 2 turns the address directly to Edom. And God says, he will make them small among the nations and utterly despised. But it's really verse 3 where things start to get pointed and that he starts attacking Edom specifically. Uh, he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. And where does Edom's pride lie? It lies in their lofty physical position. Edom had a really unique geographical uh, position in Israel where they were at a very high altitude. Most of Edom was at altitudes over 5,000 feet. They were high up in the mountains, in the cliffs. It was a very easily defensible position because they were able to have the high ground. They were able to defend out of these fortresses in the rocks. Uh, fortresses like Petra were a point of pride in the nation as they felt that they were impenetrable from an outside attack. And this is the very advantage that God pokes fun at and says will be their undoing. He says, You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Edom dwells high in the rocks, but it is God who created those rocks. They are not too high for him. And even if Edom could fly like an eagle, which were very common in Edom, and would nest in, in cliffs and crags that were higher even than Edom's fortresses, even if they could fly like an eagle, God would bring them down. And God goes one step further. Your, your fortresses aren't enough. The eagle's layers are not enough. Even if you could fly up to the stars, God would bring you down from there too. God created the stars as well. He spoke them into being. And just as he created them with the word, verse 4 ends with the reminder that it is God who declares this, and with a word he will bring judgment as well. So that is the introduction, the promise of judgment in verses 1 through 4. Next, in verses 5 through 9, Obadiah gives us the extent of judgment. He gives us the extent of the judgment. He says, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Verses 5 and 6 show how complete this judgment is going to be. He uses a couple metaphors. When thieves break in, they don't take every single thing in your house. They take what's valuable to them, and they take what they can carry. But they don't usually burn it to the ground and leave you with nothing. They just take what's valuable. And when people harvest grapes, they leave gleanings behind. They don't take every single grape. They leave a lot that's still on the bush. And for Edom, they would have been very familiar with this metaphor of grapes because they were known for their wine, their vineyards. They, they would have understood this implicitly. And it's like God is taking another shot at something that they know very well. But unlike thieves and harvesters who leave something behind, God says that when Edom is judged, they will have nothing left to them. 
their destruction will be complete. They are in trouble. And then verses 7 through 9 also contain some pointed barbs at some of Edom's well-known features. Verse 7 says that the allies which Edom chose over Judah will instead turn on them. And this would come to pass in approximately 550 BC when Babylon, who had been one of Edom's allies and whom Edom sided with in the judgment of Israel, uh, Babylon came and conquered Edom. They drove them out of their defenses. They turned on them just as Obadiah said they would. And it's interesting that Babylon, who was Edom's ally, deceived Edom just like Jacob back in Genesis 25 had deceived Esau. When, when it says in verse uh, 7, those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you, our minds should go back to that story where Esau came to Jacob and was so famished, he sold his birthright for what? For bread and stew. And just as Esau was deceived and had bread as a major image there, Edom will have bread, again, stand as a symbol for their own deception in this day. Verses 8 and 9 speak to the wisdom and might of Edom being brought low. And in addition to their lofty defenses, to their wine, Edom was very well known for their wisdom. They were known as a place of wisdom. And yet that wisdom would be brought low on the day of God's judgment. God will destroy the wise men out of Edom, and he will destroy understanding out of Mount Esau. Mount Esau was Mount Seir, and both of these titles are used interchangeably to represent the nation of Edom as a whole. It was this big mountain that kind of represented their physical prowess. Taman, which is mentioned here, was also a prominent city of Edom, and it also symbolized their power and majesty. And speaking to the nation in this symbolic language emphasized all of their power, all of their wisdom, all of their ability, but that matters little when God is the one pouring out judgment. He will bring all of, their, all of their reasons for pride to nothing. And so God has promised judgment. He has shown the extent of this judgment, how significant it will be. But third, in verses 10 through 14, God tells us the reason for the judgment. The reason for the judgment. He says in verse 10, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood aloof, on, that, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. As we described earlier, Edom stood by and watched as Jacob, their brother, was decimated by an enemy. And this should have been a source of great shame for Edom, as their passive response condemned them as someone who was complicit in the attack. And ultimately, this would lead to their utter destruction. This is the reason for their destruction. Verses 12 through 14 give a really poetic display of commanding Edom and really condemning Edom. It gives eight different prohibitions that they are to follow. They've already broken these commands, but Obadiah recites them again to condemn them and also to call them to turn even now, to stop doing these things. So here, here's what they're commanded. Verse 12 says, But do not gloat over the day of your brother in his, in, sorry, in the day, do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. It says, Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. 
Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And these prohibitions give us a little bit more of a picture of what really happens that premeditated this prophecy against Edom. As Israel was sacked by this invading army, Edom Edom stood by rejoicing and gloating and boasting in their defeat. They then entered in after the conquering army to further pillage Jerusalem. They joined in the destruction of God's holy city. And perhaps worst of all, they positioned themselves outside the city to capture runaways from Judah to hand them over to this enemy. Given the choice to aid Judah, Edom went as far as they could in the opposite direction. And so verses 10 through 14 show that the judgment coming upon Israel is well-deserved for their betrayal. But these verses also begin to hint to the means of the judgment and how that judgment is going to be meted out. And that is the the fourth section of Obadiah is the means of judgment. That's going to be in verses 15 through 18. You'll notice a word that's used 10 different times from verses 8 through 14 leading up to this section. And that is the word day. It's used, uh, like I said, 10 different times in these verses. And this consistently repeated word sets us up for the theme of how Edom is going to be judged. It says in verses 15 through uh, 18, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. And so this section introduces the means of the judgment as the day of the Lord. And this is a term that is used to describe a time when God will bless his people and judge his enemies. Here in Obadiah, we are reminded that the day of the Lord is near not only upon Edom, but upon all of the nations that oppose Israel and oppose God. These nations will be judged according to their actions. Justice will be meted out. We need not fear that evildoers will get away with their sin. They will face judgment. Verse 16 presses in with the poetic description of this day. In invading Jerusalem, the nations desecrated God's holy mountain, which would have been the Temple Mount, Mount Zion. That would have been in Jerusalem. And these nations are depicted as having drunk themselves silly in a display of arrogance and victory. And God promises that his holy hill will once again be the place of their deep drinking. But this time they would not drink in revelry, but in wrath as they will consume the cup of God's wrath. And this wrath will desolate them. And it is intentional that Obadiah uses Mount Zion to describe God's plan of judgment. Because Mount Esau, Mount Seir, the symbol of Edom's power, will be brought low. But Mount Zion, the place of God's power, 
his holy presence in the temple, on the temple mount. That will be the place of God's judgment. Not only that, but verse 17 shows that Mount Zion will serve as a place of holy refuge and restoration for God's people. Verse 18 indicates that God will use Israel to utterly consume, Israel, to utterly consume Edom, punishing them completely in keeping with his covenant promises. And verse 18 ends with a final reminder that this will certainly take place. The Lord has spoken. And this brings us to the final section of Obadiah, verses 19 through 21, which gives us the result of the judgment. We've seen the promise of judgment, the extent of the judgment, the reason for the judgment, the means of the judgment, and now we get to see what happens afterwards, the result of the judgment. All throughout Obadiah, we have seen not a general message of judgment, but a series of specific details. The specific areas of Edom's pride have been identified. Their lofty geographical position, their allies, their wine, their wise men, Mount Esau. And God pronounces judgment on these specific elements of the nation rather than just giving a general message of judgment. He's being specific. And so it makes perfect sense that he would continue to provide incredibly specific detail in describing the resulting restoration that he will work for Israel. Verses 19 through 21 describe God's plan in bringing Israel back into the land and expanding the territory that they would own. And this can be easily lost on us since we don't know the geography of Israel as implicitly as they would have known it. So if you have maps in your, in your Bible, you may be able to see a map better in your own Bible, but I'm going to bring a map up on the screen to show us what the area that he's going to refer to in verses 19 through 21 are. First, he says in 19, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Now, the Negev was the area in the southwestern uh, portion of Judah. This is a reference to Judah. And it says uh, Mount Esau, which represents the nation of Edom, which we saw earlier. This phrase here, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, shows that the people in Judah will expand, not just to their own territory, but also into Eden. Next, he says, those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. Uh, the Shephelah was an area, again, in central Judah. This is a reference, again, to Judah and to their land they already had. The land of the Philistines would have been along the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, which used to be a portion under their control. Ephraim would have been around this area in central Israel, uh, which would have been the area that Ephraim used to own before the Assyrian conquest. And Samaria was both the name of a city and an area formerly in Israel that had been lost as well. And so this verse says that the people in the Shephelah will occupy the land of the Philistines, the land of Ephraim and Samaria. Again, they are expanding. Next, it says, Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Benjamin would have been located next to Judah, um, this little circle right in there, kind of to the north of Judah. And Gilead would have been the area to the east of the Jordan River, where several of the tribes had originally settled. So once again, this verse shows that God's people in Judah will expand to control area that they used to have. Now, this map is kind of messy, so let me show it to you in another form. What this shows is that God's people 
who were now just reduced to these two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They were whittled down in size from their glory, from what God had given them, and even from what God had promised to give them. These people will now expand out in all directions. You could say that the people of Judah will expand to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. These people who are in Judah will expand in every direction. And as they would have heard these promises, in their head, they, this map would have just come up automatically to say, oh, wow, we're getting bigger. This is incredible. But then in verse 20, he goes on. Not only will Israel increase from the inside out, they will also increase from the outside in. Verse 20 says, The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. The exiles of Israel that it refers to here would have been either in Assyria or Babylon. If it's referring to the northern tribe, that would have been more of Syria. This is referring to the exiles from the Babylonian captivity, it would have been Babylon. Either way, it's very far away from Judah. Uh, we don't exactly know where Sepharad is, but almost everyone agrees that this would have been in western Turkey. Some people think this could have been the city of Sardis that we know today. And this area was just as far removed from Israel in the west as the Babylonian or Assyrian captives would have been in the east. So what God is saying is that from the ends of the earth, God will return his people to his land. And you can even see the comprehensive nature of this restoration in the locations that they're going to return to. It says, Israel will return and possess all the way from Zarephath, which is a city in the far north of Israel. They will possess from there down to the cities of the Negev. God will return them from the furthest extent that they have been sent, and they will occupy all of the land. God's restoration, like his judgment, will be complete and entire. God will not just judge Edom comprehensively. He will restore Israel comprehensively. The expansion of the land and the restoration of exiles back to the land in Israel, that's something that we've seen begin in small ways. We've seen that God brings Judah back. We've seen that God has, has done some things to restore Israel to the land in these ways. But we have not seen the full extent of what Obadiah has promised in these verses. And that will not be until Christ establishes the millennial kingdom, constituting Israel into their promised land and bringing the nations around them, Edom especially, into submission as he prepares for the final judgment. Now, the, the book as a whole finishes with an apt reminder that in God's judgment and in his restoration, the sovereign Lord God is the one who will receive the glory. He says, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This word for saviors is a word like judges or rulers, and it describes the human means that God will use to uh, have authority over Edom. The main focus of this verse is that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Edom has oppressed God's people, but it is God who will come to their defense and establish his kingdom. And the ending of Obadiah calls to mind Psalm chapter 2, in which God observes the nations raging and plotting against him and responds by scoffing at them. And why? Because he has set his king, King Jesus, on Zion, on his holy hill, the same hill that Obadiah draws attention to here. And how, will the, how should the nations respond? 
In Psalm 210, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so for Edom, the overwhelming message of this book is one of judgment, that they will receive judgment for their actions. But just like in Psalm chapter 2, in the reminder of God's authority and justice is cloaked a call to repent, to turn back to the God that they have turned their backs on. And this is the beauty of the gospel. God absolutely judges his enemies, those who oppose him, but he invites his enemies to become his friends. And Edom is no different. So that is Obadiah. God proclaims judgment against Edom. Again, if you walk away with one thing, walk away with that. God proclaims judgment against Edom. When we read Obadiah, we should be encouraged by God's faithfulness and his justice. And just like Israel, we should hold fast to God's promises of his plan for the future. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. You're dismissed.